Okay. We are marching closer to holidays that mean a lot to us. Good Friday and Easter, right around the corner. To do that, we are looking at the biblical holidays. And a lot of people don't know that there are actually biblical holidays. Yes, there are holidays that um, God shaped, God designed them, and God instructed them for his people. And one of the questions that I think we need to even ask in doing this is why would God do that? Why, why would he instruct uh, holidays for his people to keep? Uh, why is an important question to ask? And um, I have two reasons for this. The first is something that we just don't think about that often. But God, when he created the world, he also kind of created time. I mean, the text tells us that, that he put the, the, the planets and the stars and the sun and the moon in place to establish time. And when the world fell apart, time also became something that was broken. And so God is not just redeeming the world, but God also, in doing that, wants to redeem time. And that's why uh, the first holiday that God instructs is Sabbath, because that reflects God's rhythm. To keep Sabbath is to do time in a God-like way. For six days, God worked. On the seventh day, God rested. Um, so God is redeeming time. The second thing that God is doing through these holidays, and by the way, he says about these holidays, these are my appointed times. He's actually telling us the whole story of God, the story of the gospel, the story of redemption, which centers on Jesus. So these holidays, I think we've been able to see, ooze Christ. It's not coincidence that Jesus died on Passover, that he was buried on not just the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which celebrates the life coming up from the earth, but he also was buried on Sabbath. He rested. And it's not coincidence that he was raised on the Feast of first fruits when they celebrate life coming out of the earth, uh, that he is the first of that life. It's not coincidence then that 50 days later on the Feast of Pentecost that he gives his Holy Spirit. And so those are the feasts that we've looked at. Those, those are the fall feasts. I'm sorry, the spring feasts. Now we're stepping into the fall feasts. And uh, today we're going to look at, and I'm not just saying this because I'm preaching today and it's today, but this is the most important day of the year. Does anybody know what day it is? What? The Day of Atonement, called Yom Kippur. Uh, the Jews throughout the ages, even today, simply refer to this day as the day. So we're going to look at the day um, that God appointed for their annual calendar. Let's turn our Bibles to Leviticus 23. And starting with uh, verse... 26. We like to stand for the reading of God's word, so if that's something you can do, let's please stand. 
So the Lord said to Moses, the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves. Some of your texts say humble yourselves. Some of your texts say afflict yourselves. Deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it is a day of atonement. Atonement is kippur. Kippur means to cover or to dress. It's a day of getting a new dress, a new covering. Because atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. And those who deny themselves or humble themselves, afflict themselves on that day, who do not do that will be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This will be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Wherever you live is a day of Sabbath rest for you. You must deny yourselves, humble yourselves, afflict yourselves from the evening of the ninth day because that's when the day starts uh, on the, for, for the Jewish person. From the, ninth, from the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe your Sabbath. That's God's instruction for God's people for this day. Leviticus 16 also gives God's instruction to the priest, namely the high priest, which we'll also be looking at. You may be seated. So I'm going to start with just the most basic meaning of this feast, because I don't want to get lost. I want to cut right to the bottom line. What does Passover celebrate? What does Exodus mean? Anybody know? In fact, when you're, when you're in Greece and you're on a highway and you see the exit sign, it says in Greek, Exodus. It means way out. And that's what Passover celebrates. It, it, it celebrates a way out. It's, it's a way out of Egypt because Egypt is a place of slavery. And, and Egypt also metaphorically represents the things that, that we need a way out of. It's so easy to get just bound up in, in things that, that, that can enslave us, that destroy us by enslaving us. But here's the deal. We need more than just a way out. We need a way in. And I think C.S. Lewis captures this so well in, in, in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, the inconsolable secret in every one of us, the secret that hurts so much, the ache that we all feel, is nothing more than our longing to be reunited with something in the universe that we all now feel cut off. It's the longing to be on the inside of some door, which we've always seen from the outside. That longing is no mere neurosis. It's the truest index of our real situation. This is the secret of every soul, that the door on which we've been knocking all of our lives will open at last. I think Lewis, with that one paragraph, describes better than anyone else the human condition. It explains why we're always striving, why we're always seeking, why, why we're always knocking, 
It explains the hurt that we're trying to assuage. It explains the aches and the longings of our heart. Because here's the deal, whether you know this or not, we were not made for this world as it is. We were made for a garden, for Eden. A place where we know God and we can see his face and we can walk with him in the cool of the day. That's what we are made for. And see, this was lost, the Bible tells us, when Adam and Eve, they insisted on being their own masters, their own lords, their own saviors, and God said, okay, if that's what you want, you can have it, fine. In fact, in Genesis 3, verse 28, it says, and they were banished. Adam and Eve were banished. Uh, banished there, that word is used throughout the Bible. It literally means divorced. Because that's what happened. Adam and Eve were, were, were divorced from the garden, the environment for which they were made. They were divorced from God. Um, and, and there was even a cosmic divorce that was taking place. Uh, heaven became divorced from earth. Heaven is God's space. Earth is our space. And at once, those were, were, were one. And, and now that divorce is there. And as a result, the world lost all its shalom and harmony. It fell into ruin we lost home. Our human condition today is one of homesickness. And see, we don't just need to be brought out of Egypt. We need to be brought back in. We need to be brought home. In this world, I don't care how good it is for you. I don't care how healthy you are. I don't care how good your life is. Um, I don't care how good your family is. This world as it is, is not home. And we need to be brought into home. And that's what the Bible is here to, to teach us. It's, it's here to tell us the most incredible story that, that God is a God who didn't give up on the world. He so loves the world that, that he came and he's going to seek us and he's going to find us. He's going to restore us. He's going to reconcile us to himself. He's going to bring us home. And this all starts with something that we skip over with a people called Israel. The first thing God does with Israel, you can read about this in the first half of Exodus, is he gets them out. They need to get out of slavery. They need to get out of, of, of bondage. The second part of Exodus, which we, we quickly skip over, but is just as important. God says, build me a sanctuary and I will walk among you. In fact, that word for walk among is a unique Hebrew word. It's, it's, it's the same Hebrew word in Genesis 3 where it says, and Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. And so I'll show you a picture of the tabernacle or the sanctuary that God asked them to build. There it is. I love this. I love the sight of this, not just because it's in the desert, but just think about this. Here, God's people living in their tents, and in the middle of their tents, God says, I want my tent. 
And, and, and to them, when, when they looked at that tent, when they saw that white fence, and any time they entered the white fence, in their mind, they were going back to Eden. Eden, to them, is how, how we think about heaven. So, that, and, and then that, that structure there, that tent, don't, don't think chapel, don't think church, don't think cathedral, that tent is God's tent, and more specific to that, it's the garden. Because within Eden is a garden, and the garden is where God lives, and the garden is what we are made for. The garden is where we get to walk with God and know him. Now here's the deal, as much as we were made for that, as much as we long for that, for that door to be open, as C.S. Lewis talks about, as much as God wants it, there's a serious problem. And I don't think it's a problem that we consider. Part of it's because we live on this side of the cross which sometimes allows for us to take both our sin not that seriously and God's holiness as serious as we ought. But the ancients saw God as utterly unapproachable, not because God was unloving, but because God was so utterly holy. For the ancient to draw near to God would, would, would be like for us to move into something nuclear, like some nuclear fallout. It would, it would be like for us, because God calls himself this all-consuming fire. He did create the sun. So his, he's, he's greater than the sun. It, it, it would be like us drawing closer and closer and closer to the sun. In their minds, if we get too close, it's going to kill us. We're going to die. And I know some of you right now are thinking, wow, that, that, that's really like unfortunate that they had all these misconceptions about God. Um, be, be careful with that. Because I'll tell you right now, the angels themselves right now are gathered around God and they are not shouting out, yay God, and clapping their hands. They have their wings covering their eyes and they are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I'll tell you, even the, the, the last couple of verses of Exodus in one sense, it's so exciting. In another sense, it's, it's, it's depressing because they finally, the recreation of Eden takes place. Uh, the garden is, is, is all established. And um, this is what it says in Exodus 40, verse 30. It says, the cloud that covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. How exciting is that? Because God said, if you build it, I will come. But this next verse is utterly depressing. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. 
and because of the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Couldn't go in. And then you see the, the, the pro- problem further expressed in Leviticus 16. If you want to look at it, it's on page 92. If you have a Bible like mine or you can just listen to this. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. The two sons of Aaron are the two high priests who died when they approached the Lord. In fact, it continues. It says, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he too will die for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. In fact, let me just show you uh, how this uh, looked because all you can see right now is the tent. God lives in a tent when his people live in tents and uh, when they move into the land and live in houses that God says you didn't build, uh, then God gets his house and it's right in the middle again. But that, that tent or that house is two rooms. And let me just take you inside the house. That's one of the rooms where the priest could go, and only the priest. But there's a second room behind that red curtain with the two cherubim on it. And that room behind that curtain is, in their minds, the garden of the Lord. It's where God is. It's where he lives. It's where the kind of glory is. And the reason why you have two cherubim on on, on the curtain is because that's what God put in place when he banished them from the garden. He put two cherubim there to say, you can't come back in. But Aaron's sons just go waltzing in. And they die. So the, the, the rest of of Leviticus 16 is is here to teach us how we get to approach God. Now, I've looked at this from the angle of who God is. I want to also look at this from the angle of of, of who we are. And I'm going to start with this question. What do you look like? Because all of us walk around with with this sense of of, of how we appear, not just to ourselves, but how we appear to others. Um, And and you can't say today that you don't care about this because think about all the selfies you take of yourself. And and think about how you do those selfies. Uh, Some of you literally will take 20 or more selfies before you finally get the one that's good enough for you to post on either Facebook or Instagram. I'm right on that, I know it, I've watched it. (laughs) I was in Rome last year with with Libby and I literally watched this girl, she was a girl, with her friend. Her friend had to retake her picture, I'm not kidding you, 20 plus times. And every time, it was just a little different pose (laughs) with the Colosseum behind her. And I'm like, would you just enjoy Rome in this Colosseum instead of having to take your picture that you can put on Facebook to show yourself off? 
But anyway, I'm going down a rabbit trail. I'm not going any further. <laughs> but here's the deal. We, we have this image in our, in, our, in our minds of how we look, and it's more than just a physical appearance. It's also how do we look internally? How, how do we look morally and spiritually? Now, here's another twist I want to put on this question. What do you look like to God? Do you know? Do you know how God sees you, how God views you, how you appear to him? And some of you right now probably think, yeah, I I look beautiful to God. Others of you right now think, "I, I, I look probably really ugly to God. This is why the ancients said we need a priest. When we approach God, we need a priest because a priest's job in the ancient world was to clean a person up. It was was under the understanding that we are unfit to approach a holy God. And so a priest through prayers and sacrifices would wash the worshiper up so they could only draw near. And see, this gets into David's question. He asks it, who who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who who may enter into God's house? David answers, he says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's who gets to go in. And see, this is why you needed a priest. It was their profession to wash you up, to clean you, to to, to beautify you so that you could approach a holy God. And in Leviticus 16, the rest of the instructions are are for the feast of Yom Kippur because Yom Kippur is the one day of the year, which is why the Jews to this day simply call it the day when the holiest man, the high priest, could walk into the holiest place and stand before God. If you read Leviticus 16 this week, which I encourage you to do, Leviticus is not as scary a book as you think. You'll see that this comes with all kinds of detailed instruction. I'm not going to get bogged down into that this morning, but I at least want to show you the promise that uh, if they kept these instructions, uh, what God would do. And, And the promise is at the end of Leviticus 16 in verse 30, where God says, because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you so that you will stand before the Lord and you will be utterly clean from all your sins. And the you there is not you, high priest. It's you, entire nation. All your sins. Gone. You're clean in a single day. Because this is the day where it's, it's, it's pretty much a one-man show. It's all about the high priest. This is the day where the high priest eventually will walk into the Holy Holies, the garden of God, where he will stand before the Lord As the people's representative, all the people of the nation will be hidden inside the high priest so that 
the people's righteousness is the high priest's righteousness because the high priest's righteousness is the people's righteousness. The, the high priest's beauty and glory is the people's beauty and glory. He stands before them, before the Lord, as the people's representative on that day. And you have no idea what, what went into this day. First of all, the high priest throughout the year is always preparing for this day. And then the week leading up to this day, the high priest would go into complete seclusion where he would be kept uh, apart from the world so that the world wouldn't stain him in any way. Um, during this week, he basically did three things. He washed, he washed, he washed. He, he, he prayed, he prayed, he prayed, and he meditated on God's word. He namely spent the task of memorizing Leviticus 16, which were his instructions for Yom Kippur. Then the night before Yom Kippur, he did not sleep. He stayed up all night. He stayed up praying. He had other priests gathered around him to keep him awake, to keep him from falling asleep. They, they prayed. They read the text and all of this. Then early the next morning, the priest would make his way to the house. And as he entered the house, the courtyards, it was packed like a Super Bowl. Because the people on this day they were there. They were, they were ready. All eyes were going to be fixed on this high priest because he was their representative and he was going to represent them, bef them before the Lord. There are 40 specific steps that that priest had to do perfectly. Any misstep, anything that was done out of order, he would have to start over. And the two most important uh, uh, things that he was asked to do of these 40 things were essentially he had to offer sacrifice. He had to offer sacrifice for himself. He had to offer sacrifice for the priest. He had to offer sacrifice for the people. He had to offer sacrifice for the temple. He had to do the morning and the evening sacrifice. And the other thing is he bathed. After each sacrifice, he had this uh, luxurious bath that he would go into. He would bathe, and instead of putting on his high priestly robe, on this day, he was given a pure white robe. But here's what we need to know. Just like when we studied the kings, and, and we saw in David someone who... Uh, so foreshadowed the king that, that, that is to come, that, that we all long for, Messiah. David was still just a much, as much of the problem as he was the solution. So with the high priest. Year after year, for a whole millennia, this high priest is just a man. He's just like everybody else. And we see this in, in, in Zechariah 3. You can turn there or you can just listen. <laughs> I switched Bibles right before I forgot to mark Zechariah 3 and I'm feeling that panic again. Where is it? <sighs> Dad, do you want to find it for me or not? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Zechariah 3, if you have a Bible like mine, it's on page 771. And listen to this. Zechariah is giving this vision. 
of the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur in the temple. It goes like this. Then God showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. That, that, the high priest standing before the Lord is technical language for what the high priest did on Yom Kippur when he entered the garden of God, when he went behind the curtain. And this is such an interesting detail. He, it says, and Satan, and Satan was right there at the right side to accuse him. It's so Satan, isn't it? In this moment where the high priest is to be the representative of all the people, he's got the accuser accusing him. But Jesus protects him. Or the Lord, however you want to interpret the angel of the Lord. But here's the shocker of the text. Here stands the holiest man on the holiest day of the year in the holiest place. And what does God see? Look at verse 3. Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. What? Did this guy just bathe five times? He just spent a week in utter seclusion. In fact, that, that, that word for filth there in the Hebrew is excrement. Here is the best standing before God. And what does God see? Someone who's covered in excrement. Clothes that are soiled. Clothes in the Bible are different than clothes to us. To us, clothes are fashion. Clothes to the ancient uh, represent a person's status. Their, their status in life, but especially their status before God. So clothes, uh, whenever it's used in the Bible, isn't just some external material, but it represents the essence of that person, their, their status. That's what God sees. And Isaiah says this, in Isaiah 64, he says, all of us, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you do, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are nothing but filthy rags. Because here's the deal, left to ourselves, we could never get back into God. We could never uh, make our way through the door back into the garden that we were made for. We could never ascend God's holy hill and enter his house. But one of the big lies that, that people believe today is that they think that they can clean themselves. They think they can somehow make themselves beautiful. I mean, why do you always feel this need to prove yourself? Why are you so driven to succeed? Why are you such a perfectionist? 
Why do you always feel this need to, to please all the people around you? Why is it that when you make a mistake or, or maybe there's a gross fault in your life that you just feel like you need to cover that? You're washing. You're, you're, you're trying to clean yourselves. In fact, this is one of the problems I have with so much spirituality today. Uh, we, so much of it is packaged with this understanding that if, if, if we just do this well enough, and if we're spiritual enough, and if we pray enough, or fast enough, or give enough, or help the poor enough, that will make us clean. We can't clean ourselves. We absolutely need a priest. And here's the message of the Bible. We have one. Because when you look at verse 8 of chapter 3, I love this. It says, listen, high priest Joshua, you and all the priests seated before you, you're just nothing more than symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, and see the stone. Stone is, is the temple. The temple that... I have set in front of Joshua, there will be seven eyes on that one temple, that one stone. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And this is what will be inscribed on it. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Gone. That is, I don't, know, I don't know about you. To this defiled heart, to this defiled life, that is amazing. And, 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 and the promise is, 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 is that this priest, when he comes, and we know who this priest is because we know the day of atonement is just, it's, it's foreshadowing um, a greater day of atonement. It points us to Christ. Christ is gonna do the same thing uh, that he does to Joshua in Zechariah 3. Look at verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Remember, clothes are more than just that thing external. It's, it's, it's take and remove all the filth. And then look at verse 5. It's not just taking the filth off, but it's putting the clean on. It's, it's, it's putting the, the, the new dress. I mean, that's what, that's what kapoor means. It means covering. It means to be dressed. Uh, this is what happens. It's the promise of Yom Kippur is that we're, the filth will be gone and we're going to get new clothes. And it says, the angel said to, the, to them, take off his filthy clothes. See, I have taken away your sin. I will put fine garments on you. And then I said, I will put a clean turban on his head. They will put a clean turban on his head. And they clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. This is exactly what Christ does. This was the hope that, that, that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 61. When, when Isaiah says, I delighted greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself 
with her jewels. That's an amazing picture. In other words, it's the promise that God will make us as beautiful as we were on our wedding day. And that's because we have a high priest. And we're hidden in him. Where his righteousness now becomes our righteousness. Where his beauty becomes our beauty. Where his glory becomes our glory. That's the meaning of Good Friday. In fact, just just think for a moment how, how Jesus became our high priest. I mean... His Yom Kippur, which we call Good Friday, instead of having friends to pray with him through the night, his friends betray him. Instead of that next morning having a whole nation cheering him on, he was utterly rejected. Instead of being clothed in a white robe, he was stripped naked. Instead of being Bathed in a luxurious bath, he's bathed in spit. Instead of having God to protect him from the accuser, even God turned his back. And if you know anything about the Feast of of Yom Kippur, you know that the high point of this, this whole day is actually when they bring two goats out to the high priest. And, and one of these goats is called a scapegoat, from which we get the term scapegoat. Scapegoat is a part of our vernacular. We use that term anytime we say that person got all the blame. And that's exactly what the scapegoat was on the Day of Atonement. They'd bring this goat to the high priest. The high priest would put his hands on the head of the goat, and he would pray all his sin onto that goat. The sin of the priest, the sin of the entire nation were were prayed onto that goat. And then that goat was taken outside the city to die. Let me tell you something. Jesus is not just our high priest. He is the goat. And I mean that in today's vernacular. The greatest of all time. (laughs) But he became the scapegoat. I, I want you to see this picture. All our sin, our shame, our defilement, all our ugly placed on him. He bore it. Paul talks about it this way. He said, he who knew no sin, Christ, became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Or I'll put this in the language of a fairy tale. Beauty became the beast to make the beast beautiful. gospel. And probably one of the little details that sometimes gets lost on Good Friday is that when Jesus breathed his last breath, can I, can I show you, can you take me that PowerPoint picture of inside the temple? <laughs> Imagine. 
being in the temple. At the moment that Jesus breathed his last breath and that entire curtain being torn from top to bottom. One, that's what Jewish fathers did when they grieved the loss of their son. They tore their, they tore their ropes from top to bottom. Two, his death means we get to come in. Which is why the writer of Hebrews uh, says this. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open to us that gets us behind the curtain. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God boldly with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith, that trusting him and what he has done, our hearts will be sprinkled and our guilty consciences will be cleansed. Let me just end with this question today. How stained do you feel? How defiled? This is the third time I've preached this. I've had so many people come up to me with tears in their eyes. Some even saying in the last week, Rod, you have no idea how badly I've defiled myself. We've all defiled ourselves. We have stained hands. We've, we've stained our hearts. We've soiled our lives. It doesn't matter how filthy we are. It doesn't. All we need to do is come to him. Trust him. Trust him as our priest, our great high priest. Place our life in him so that we're hidden in him. There's one instruction that's given in all God's, every time God gives instruction for Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, for the people. And I highlighted it three times. God says, deny yourself, or humble yourself, or afflict yourself. In other words, we're trying to get at the meaning of that word, and I'll tell you what the word means in Hebrew. It's clear. It's not even confusing. It's, it's the Hebrew word ana. Ana means poor. It means weak. God's instruction for us on this day is simply this. Become poor. Stop trying to prove yourself. Stop coming to God with, 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 with all of your good works and, and all of your accomplishments and, and all of your righteousness. Lay all of that down. All God says, come to me the way I come to you. Come to me poor. And Jews throughout uh, the ages have interpreted interpreted becoming Anna as a, as, a, as a day of fasting. Now remember, um, fasting to a Jew is not I perform this to get God to perform that. Fasting for a Jew is an act of contrition. It, it, it's accompanied with repentance. 
That's why on the first day of this month, which is Rosh Hashanah, their New Year's Day, the Feast of Trumpets, and this day, which is 10 days later, those 10 days leading up to Yom Kippur are called the days of awe or the days of repentance. But the 10 days where the Jew takes an inventory of his life and assesses himself and comes clean and stops blaming and stops hiding and lays it all bare before a holy God and in contrition through afflicting themselves, fasting, they offer God a broken and a contrite heart. As we prepare for Good Friday, the day that celebrates the Day of Atonement, let's prepare ourselves. Let's pray. God, what a, what, a, what a glorious, incredible thought it is that you can take unclean and make it clean. You can take ugly, spiritual and moral ugly, and make it beautiful. And then when we look at how you did it, how you became our priest, how you bore our sin, how you took it upon yourself. Because you don't want us to just draw near. You want us to come all the way in. God, may we not be too proud to declare you are a holy God. May we not be too proud to admit in and of ourselves we are ugly and filthy before you. And may we not be too proud to humble ourselves and to take hold of the priest that you've offered. May it be, Lord. As we go from here, one final thought. We are the garden of God. That alone is stunningly spectacular. We're right back in Genesis 2. Adam and Eve walking with God, God walking with us. Adam and Eve had a vocation. Their vocation was to be the garden, to bring the garden to the entire world. So be the garden this week. Bring the garden of God to your family, your friends, your neighborhood, your school, your work. Have a great week. See you on Sunday. We have three services. Who's going to be there for seven? Anybody? Okay, good. That's all I needed.